Thanks for listening to No Intermission, where I'm interviewing artists and administrators that contribute to Chicago's theater scene to learn about what they're thinking about in the wake of COVID-19 and to talk about the great work they've already done. In this episode, we're moving beyond the city limits to learn about the Kane Repertory Theater, which is located in St. Charles, Illinois. The theater was founded in 2019 by Dan Kreimer and Avery Bown after they graduated from the MFA acting program at Northern Illinois University. As the pandemic started turning the theater industry upside down, Dan and Avery decided to use the unconventional circumstances to start workshopping new plays, opening submissions to playwrights hoping to develop their work. And as a result, the new play lab was born. Dan and Avery have worked hard to build the Kane Rep and have been successful in creating opportunities to connect playwrights, actors, and virtual audiences over the past few months. Starting a theater company from the ground up is no easy feat, and we talked about the importance of mentorship, learning how to shape and execute a vision, and why being a flexible creative organization is so important. I'm excited to see where the Kane Rep goes as they wrap up cycle three of the new Play Lab. Hello. Hi. Thank you guys for joining today and talking. First, can you just talk to me a little bit about um, your backgrounds as individuals and as administrators of your company? Sure thing. So uh, my name is Avery Bound. I'm the managing director. Uh, I'm originally from Atlanta, uh, the, well, the Atlanta area, and I moved up to Illinois uh, to go to grad school, uh, which is the same story for Dan. Uh, to Northern Illinois University where we got our MFAs in acting. Uh, our first year we actually <laughs> started the, the dreaming about what it means to have a theater and started walking down that path and deciding that grad school was too much of a task uh, to also do arts administration at the same time. And so coming out, I think that we, we really hit the ground running. You know, we knew that a big part of arts administration is understanding uh, your community, right? Getting involved with your community and knowing that they are central because without them, you know, like theater is the geographic art form, you know? And so without understanding the place that you're at, then you're gonna, you know, not go very far. So we um, really hit the ground running with our exploration of our community. And yeah, and that's where we're at. I live in Chicago now uh, in Ravenswood. It's a great neighborhood. Uh, and I make the drive out to St. Charles every once, you know, for pretty often when we're actually doing things. Uh, and I listen to a lot of podcasts during that. So that's my life. There you go. <laughs> Love that. And for me, um, I'm originally from New York City. Well, I was born in Russia, but I grew up in New York City. And um, I grew up in Brooklyn, represent. Uh, and uh, nice. I went to undergrad at Montclair State University, got my BFA in acting. And I got into grad school and then it was I was sort of like maybe before I go to grad school I should put on a play and actually do some theater in New York before I do grad school and so I approached two people that were from my undergrad that were a year below me Jeremy Landes and Paige Chirino and I was like let's do a play and we were going to do really really and basically I started what is now Normal Avenue Productions which is a small tier equity house in New York City. And so I sort of fell into the producer role because I had to, I was the person mm -hmm. that ended up casting it. I got the director, we had to fundraise like three and a half K. We had to find the space, a lot of those things I did. So like, that's sort of like, I became familiar with the process of getting things together, which became integral when we started putting together the theater because a lot of those things we had to do with the show with our town and with Kane Rep as well, you know, so that informed a lot of my decisions to some respects. 
Sure. And that, that was your first experience like in that producing role? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. When I graduated from Northwestern and their student theater scene is really great because it gives a lot of, you know, it gives us the opportunity to just put on a bunch of different hats at the same time, which is really great. And one of my first big learning experiences as, as a student outside of the classroom was being a producer for a student run show. It was one that was student written um, and student directed as well. And that experience of just having to build teams was something that was so, so, you know, I didn't realize what a great skill that would end up being um, be just even like beyond the theater world as well. Like just knowing who to the important, understanding the importance of relationships and being able to project manage as well and being able to get everybody kind of rallying behind um, the same vision and just, you know, you're all students at the same time as well. So everyone has a bunch of different priorities. So that's like a, a different layer of complexity even um, that was super cool to learn from. So yeah, I just think there's something really special about getting the chance to produce a show and that can you know help inform a lot of what you end up taking on in the future. So that's awesome. And I would love to hear more specifically too about what like your inspiration for founding Kane Rep um, and the mission of the company and how you guys end up working towards that. So really the kind of the story of the founding I think is really a lot to do with it. While Dan and I are very uh, different human beings, um, <laughs> we're very, we have very different points of view on some things. We're very, very united in what we think makes art worthwhile, you know? And I think that for us, we're both really interested in the idea of how an audience is changed by theater, right? And we, you know, and then the combined, uh, our combined knowledge there and something that the tradition of NIU gives us is that we believe that, um, the way that theater changes an audience is through the connection to the actor. And so we have a very actor-centric perspective, right? Um, and really that, uh, that has informed our mission, which by the way, I'll just go ahead and recite it, is that Kane Repertory Theater is a home for professional intellectually stimulating theater by using visceral performance to explore values in America. We seek to spark conversation, evoke empathy and strengthen the community. And that's something that we sat down at literally the Starbucks in the Cal for probably three weeks. <laughs> and hammered out this, you know, this two sentence mission, uh, because I think that it encompasses all the things that we collectively find important. And then mm -hmm. the other part about our, when we founded, the thing that inspired us is that we used a majority of our MFA acting class. Uh, and so using this shared tradition that we have that we built up over the three years of an MFA program, we were able to really bring these, um, you know, these wonderful artists, these people that we grew up with in a way, uh, into the fold so that we can create the art that all of us had uh, a collective ethos in building. A lot of it stems from, you know, the base of what we were taught at NIU. And really, I think one of the bases of great acting training is the Meisner technique. And I do think that the Meisner technique really, if taught properly, and then um, the other technique we were taught at NIU was the Earl Gister technique. I do think there's something really unique about the combination of those two techniques that really fills actors with life and performance, which is really what me and Avery are really always looking for, you know. Um, and because we were all taught the same thing at NIU, being able to use this shared vocabulary makes directing projects a lot easier because we have an understanding of sort of the aesthetic that we're looking for. Totally. Yeah, and I think you're already starting to touch on this, but I would also be interested to know about the, like in terms of your 
professional working relationship right now of the ways in which you guys end up collaborating from an artistic perspective and a managerial perspective. So um, like what responsibilities do you each end up taking on? Um, and has that changed over the past few months as well? Like when you've had to, I'm sure there's been an element of crisis control involved. Um, and yeah, I would just be interested in hearing about how that has impacted your day to day and also your the strategic way that you go about uh, collaborating. Sure, I think just to start, I think that, you know, our relationship and like our roles are sort of unconventional at this point, because even though like, we've given ourselves sort of the title of like, artistic director and manage, managing director, there are, I think, almost no decisions that we don't run by one another. Um, I'm sure maybe if one day we got to a point where the budget was not five thousand dollars but five hundred thousand dollars that might start changing you know but at this point like it's there's literally nothing that we do where we don't run by one another and dan has a lot of really great you know just to praise dan a little bit he has a very good idea about what he wants you know what i mean he has a he's very decisive in that way and um but then it's about (laughs) 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 but then it it becomes about a question of like what you talked about project managing you know what I mean like I I enjoy the process of picking up a project and being like okay what are the steps that we need to do to get to that desired outcome and then I talk to Dan about that you know what I mean so we kind of uh, complement each other well in those ways Uh, and I think that with the new play lab what we've really done is like Dan said like he is that person who reaches out to actors to directors to playwrights and uh, has a great ability to seek those people out. And then, you know, my job is to make sure that the website's running and that we have a YouTube live and, and, and that the... people get paid. You know yeah. what I mean? It's, it really is, there is that kind of reality that you run into when you start running a theater that it's like, oh, that's more, you know, if you want to be able to pay people, if you want to be able to do these things, like there are certain systems that you have to um, create. And I enjoy doing that. While Dan is very good about, you know, expanding what those systems can mean. So I think that we have a good simpatico there. Sure. And is I'm I'm just personal curiosity, is there any were there any like mentors or resources that were really helpful to you um <laughs> specifically throughout the founding of the company, even right now, um that like you look to for guidance or that have really helped you create what the cane rep is? Well the first person I'm gonna mention is PJ Powers from Timeline. We were brazen even back then and we reached out to a bunch of people that we were like hey we want to start a theater we were wondering if you could mentor us or coach us or talk to us and pj paris was one of the first people that responded from timeline and he was very generous and gave us like an hour and a half of his time we came up to timeline he gave us some free tickets to watch a show and he just talked to us about how he started a theater because he was a graduate of depaul and he just recently graduated depaul i think when he started timeline uh, as a bfa and he just talked about how he made that happen a couple of other people that responded to us but we just sort of like we had this grandiose plan but once grad school really came into play it sort of tapered off like uh bj jones responded to us which ironically now he's about to be a director for one of our readings at the new play lab bj jones is the artistic director of north light so uh sort of funny how things come right. back together because we were yeah. i was on the phone with him and he's like 
didn't you guys reach out to me like three years ago asking to <laughs> the we're like yeah that fell through but uh thanks for joining right. us now uh i think steve scott yes yeah, we did. reached yeah. out to and amazingly his his husband ted horrell was in uh bow keepers just uh in the last cycle so mm -hmm. we've had you know it's amazing these little connections they start to come back up yeah, yeah. and then we have our board members now you know paul Lencioni, who's um the president of our board, uh, he's not a theater guy at all, but he's a really, uh, he's the CEO of a privately owned grocery store in St. Charles. It's 92 years old. He's also an NIU alumni. And he's really been mentoring us on like the sort of the administrative and leadership side, you know, of really like teaching us how to negotiate, how to sell. You know, a lot of these things were, you know, if you want to grow as an organization, it stops being about theater at some points and it starts being about how you present yourself mm -hmm. and you know how you communicate so yeah we've we've been really fortunate mm -hmm. with a lot of people like giving us yes a lot of help i will say that another another mentor that we've been very lucky to have is paul castle who is the dean of college of uh, he's the dean of the college of visual and performing arts at niu and uh yeah. he's uh, also a geneva resident and an amazing mentor because he is someone who has started some theaters himself so that he well paul lencioni uh has a very strong business mind i think that paul castle has a very strong uh theatrical administration mind so awesome. yeah i mean we're we're very fortunate in that respect yeah no it's i just always think it's important to you know share with people how important the help of other people is a lot of the time especially when like you have this vision that you really want to execute but there are just so many things that you need to think through and there are so many steps involved and there are so many new skills that you're not sure how to develop yet that like, you know, other smart, generous people are always so indispensable to, you know, to no matter how ambitious a, a new endeavor is. So I just always like to call attention to that. The only reason I am in the place that I am now is because of the few people that actually believe in you enough to push you forward. Mm -hmm. You know, like that is so real. Uh, mm -hmm. And if I, I hope everybody's lucky enough to have at least three or five people like those in their life, you know, cause those people really make a difference in your future, mm -hmm. you know? Like, yeah. Yeah. And they care about you. So ask, yeah. you know, Absolutely. that's the biggest thing. Yeah. 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 That's been a really huge learning experience for me, whether it's within theater or outside of theater, like in my job currently or in any other part of my life. It's, it is just so important to work up that courage to ask in the first place and to, you know, not have an ego about it a lot of the time. That's really important as well. Right. Um, there are just so many. I see you. I'm sure you yes. I, I'm I'm resonated. I'm, no, I'm laughing. I'm laughing because I, I'm just going to throw this out there because I think what you're saying is so spot on. The first person that comes to mind that we got to be a part of the new Play Lab is Austin Pendleton. He's a Tony nominee. He's a Steppenwolf ensemble wow. member. He's been an untold he's number been, of yeah, movies. Yeah, I like, mean, this guy uh -huh. is like, he's a theater legend. A lot of people are in it. The only reason he was in our reading is because I sent him an email and was like, hey, we would love you to be a part of it. Now, now, like four weeks later, I post a question on social media in a theater-related group about asking, like, does anybody have any leads for contacts in the media industry, right? Like, because we were looking for a press release. And I had, like, two people that were, like, so negative about asking. 
And like to be so vehement and shoot people down, especially in this industry, especially now about just asking for help to me was like really, it just doesn't seem productive. Dan and I have put in hundreds of hours into cane rep because it's our passion, because we love it. You know, we, I don't think, I don't regret it. I don't think he does. We don't get paid. We don't get paid. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, that's, it's, it is a labor of love. And to ask people to participate in that labor of love is not something that's meant as an insult or to denigrate the work that other people have done to get those contacts, but in an opportunity to build relationships going forward. Yeah, 100%. There's one one of my, last thing I'll say, but I'll promise we're going to talk about the new Play Lab in just a minute. Oh, it's just, there's this, there's this, um, this book that I read a while ago called Give and Take, and it's by Adam Grant, who I think is like a behavioral, not a behavioral economist, he may be like an organizational psychologist. And it's basically about how generosity and giving more of your self and your time to other people, whether it's in the workplace or in your personal life is actually like people might think that leads to burnout, but it actually ends up doing the opposite. And it just ends up expanding um, more of your capabilities, more of your network, more of your opportunities in the future for yourself and for other people. It just, it makes the pie bigger essentially. Um, and that's just one of, it's one of my favorite books. It's one of the things that I take with me all of the time and try to implement into um, whatever I am doing. And I love that sentiment of just like, usually giving more and being more open to, you know, expanding that pool of people that are in your circle that you're willing to help and reach out to can only benefit everybody involved. Uh, so I just try to keep that in the back of my head all the time because I just th I think it's applicable to literally everything. Okay, let's take a step back for a second. And because I know you referenced the new play live a couple times now, but I just want everybody to be able to know exactly what that is and give you a chance to talk about how it was conceived um, and the goals of the lab. So if you just want to give some sort of explanation of what exactly this is so people know more about it. When COVID happened, a lot of theatrical organizations were in a di really difficult place because so much of theatrical organizations, their success outside of donor money is based on the content that they put out, right? And so for us as a theatrical organization, we were having our first read for the next live play we wanted to do, March 16th, which was the day shelter in place was announced. <laughs> you know, so we were like, well, <laughs> you know, there goes that. Um, and so when that happened, you know, me and Avery, obviously, like COVID was awful. Uh, I had to take off from work because I was at a, I was like a, a high risk, like autoimmune thing. So like, we had all this time and me and Avery had several phone conversations. We're like, well, what do we do? You know, it's like, we still want to be like, like talked active. about. Yeah, yeah, we want to be active, right? We want, we want the community to know we're still there. So we decided to start getting together, just uh, us, you know, uh, our ensemble to work together. We decided to just start reading plays, you know, in private, you know, uh, whatever was interesting us at the time, someone could nominate it and we'd be like, yeah, let's do that. And so we did this two times a week for probably about a month, would you say? Yeah, yeah. And that kind of germinated the idea of what you know what we're doing here is actually kind of interesting you know we're we're working on plays and for Dan uh, because he's talked about this the idea popped in his head that like well all of these plays that people are working on 
they, it's not like they just disappeared, right? The theaters that were gonna be working on them stopped working on them, but the plays still existed. And so why not reach out to these people who are looking to develop plays, looking to push the theater forward, kind of that initial genesis of what the theater is, um, and ask them to submit and see if we can um, workshop. workshop them, help them develop to the next step of what the play's iteration will be. And so we put together um, an idea about what this program would be, kind of a mission for the program. Do you want to say what, those, what that is? Yeah, I mean, the mission was really to serve the playwright and the um, playwrights of integrity and furthering their work. And then it's also to serve the American theater, you know? And um, basically, once we had the thought, you know, I called the Avery, he's like, yeah, this is, cool like let's let's see what we can do and so then we took advantage of the advent of social media <laughs> and i basically posted like a google doc on in all of the playwrights groups all over the country that i that i knew existed and over two or three days we were already at like 150 submissions you know so something definitely really resonated and we started receiving all these submissions and you know at first we thought we were going to get submissions like just like people writing plays, but then we started getting people that were like O'Neill finalists or like, you know, like people that were really high caliber playwrights that have really been on um, the circuit of regional theater or being commissioned by regional theaters or, you know, Lord houses. Like, so we sort of really hit a gold mine. Uh, we had a lot of plays to look through. And so, yeah, we just are like, okay, great. So we'll do a play every week with a week off. Um, our first cycle, we call them cycles, which is basically in a cycle, we do four plays, one every week. Our first cycle, we had Adam Krar, Quincy Long, Mike Solomonson, and Leah Romeo. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, all great playwrights, all great plays. And in our first cycle, we actually mostly cast people from our ensemble. Uh, so like a lot of the work that was, you know, we, we I mean, right. yeah, I mean, I don't, I think we just wanted to create opportunity for our group. And um, yeah, so that's sort of what just happened organically. Mm -hmm. um, but then we started trying to reach out to actors and directors outside of our ensemble. And that's really, you see the genesis of that, starting with the second cycle where our first play that we workshopped, The Venetians, by Matthew Barbeau, I mean, we were very fortunate because we had like, I mean, the play is incredible. It's epic. It's epic, yeah. I mean, all the plays that we do are really high level plays. That play was sort of putting together the storylines of Merchant of Venice and Othello and then a bunch of other Shakespeare. It's like mm. a Shakespeare mashup, but that's just a crude way right. of referring to it. It's actually very, I mean- Carefully it, composed. Yeah. It's like a careful composition of all yeah. of these, basically every Shakespeare play that takes place in Italy is mentioned. It's about Shylock, it's about Othello, and about what it means to be an outsider in a society that does not want to change to accept you, that needs mm -hmm. to change to accept you, but will not change to do it. Um, and it, it mirrors, so brilliantly what America is going through right now that I think that we were, of course, lucky and very glad to be able to produce that play. Really, when we read it, we were uh, inspired to try and bring a cast together uh, that could do justice. Do justice. Yeah. yeah. And not to say that our ensemble couldn't, but one thing to know about our ensemble is that it is, you know, generally young and also generally white. And so yeah. like we, to find diverse works that tell diverse stories, which is of course an exceptionally important thing to do in the theater, we had to start reaching out and expanding our, our group.
but we were just blessed. I mean, we were really blessed to have so many incredible people and they bought into what we were doing. We had James Vincent Meredith playing Othello from Steppenwolf and we had John Plumpus, who's like one of the stalwarts of the regional theater. We had Mark Corkins, who was a 15 plus year ensemble member at APT and at Milwaukee Rep back when they had an ensemble. I mean, Marcy Kearns, she's the associate artistic director of Chamber. Mm-hmm. I mean, we had like- Directing by Anthony Irons, yeah, who is Anthony of course Irons. Congo Square Theater, Chicago's own, and also a Looking Glass ensemble member. And also is joining us in a reading who's also incredible. I mean, we just had like, I mean, I'm sure I'm missing people because it was a big cast. And the buy-in by those people gave us, gave permission to other people of their profile to buy in as well, which we're very fortunate for because ultimately it's great for the playwrights because during this time, it's hard probably to showcase your work to any agent or, you know, or any AD. And when you have people of this kind of profile, they can get people to actually, I mean, what's it called? Uh, Matthew got his play read at Arena Stage and at Alliance because of our reading, you know, which is like, mm-hmm. I think, incredible for him. And I hope it gets produced once everything's over, you know. So ultimately, at the end of the day, we want to serve the playwright and through the lab, give them a future for their work to be continued to either be commissioned, produced, developed. If you're part of our newsletter or you're part of our Facebook page, we can invite you to them. So it's pretty available to people if they're interested in watching it. Awesome. I think using this time for specifically workshopping is really powerful and really productive. I've heard from a lot of people from an, who, from their own individual perspective, are like, yeah, like this, this sucks, but there's also the sense of relief of like, I don't have to be, you know, always trying to be at the top of my game or like working at this really quick, fast paced lifestyle all the time anymore. I can kind of have like a little bit more time to take a step back and reflect and, you know, figure out how else I want to spend my time and, and, and all of those things. And I think, you know, workshopping plays and like having a, like a sandbox to play in right now and kind of like, you know, getting feedback on things and taking advantage of a slower pace to build up skills, to, you know, refine things that you've been working on, to bring more people to have more people engage with work that might have not had the time or energy to engage with it previously um, is a really fabulous opportunity. And if you're you know, lucky enough to not be impacted adversely health-wise by COVID or you know, economically by COVID, there is a lot of opportunity in this moment right now. So it's really cool to me that you're using the new Play Lab specifically for that. Also like, you know, assisting playwrights during this time too. Like this is, I'm sure this is a big, you know, help for them just to get something on its feet in a way and, you know, get feedback on it and to hear other perspectives on their work too. Like that's got to be really great for them. And I'm, I'm assuming that they've, they've come to you and have, you know, been grateful for the opportunity as well. Yes, luckily. Yeah. <laughs> I mm-hmm. think that every playwright has had, has expressed that it has helped them press forward in the development of their plays, which I think is great. We uh, are always committing ourselves to, you know, what is better for artists and, uh, so we we have committed to pay every artist that is involved with the new play lab, and through our first two cycles, we have paid out over forty five hundred dollars to actors, which I think is an amazing thing. That I you know like I don't want to pat us on the back for it. That's mainly because people are very generous and donate uh, during our readings, which are free of charge to see otherwise. You know, there's no limit on that. But uh, for people who are inspired by the work and want to help these actors, then there's a great avenue to do that. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, actors, playwrights, and directors. Yes, Everybody gets compensated. Um, yeah. That. 
So shifting a little bit from specifically the new play lab, um, this is kind of a more theoretical question, I guess, more um, that I'm just interested to hear people's perspectives on. But I would love to know how, if at all, you think that COVID will impact the way that you guys at Kane Rep and at other theater companies engage with audiences in the future? Like what additional layers are you going to have to be thinking about? Do you think this is kind of a, a short-term shift or something that's going to indicate a longer-term change within the industry and in the future for individual companies? I guess I'll say that I think that in terms of the way you engage with employees in general, um, not that we really have any of those yet, but uh, we, you know, like there's an overemphasis on coming in even when you're feeling a little bit sick, you know, and how quickly and easily a flu can rip through a cast, you know what I mean? So encouraging actors, encouraging staff and production people, designers, all that, to be really conscientious about their health, you know, and, and to not be as willing to put their health on the line uh, because that actually, you know, it's bad for them, but it's also bad for other people company. around, yeah, you know, it's bad for the company. company. Yeah. You know, there's a story about how um, a, a theater up in, I think it's Canada, is it? I, I, I can't remember which theater it is, but they took out literally just before the, the pandemic started, they took out pandemic insurance where like sickness-based insurance that would cover a show in case all the actors got sick at once and they had to cancel. And so this was, you know, I mean, just such a, a random move that they made, you know, the artistic yeah. director was saying, like, I had no, I'm not Nostradamus or anything, you know, I literally just am already concerned about the fact that, uh, you know, a stomach bug can take out a show in a night. And like, that ended up being a very prescient choice for him, you know, and now this theater, sure. can, uh, it's a basically are fine, you know, they're paying all their employees, nothing has changed for them, uh, other than the fact that they're not producing. And that is I think a smart, that's gonna be a big thing that's gonna happen amongst theaters. So being prepared for when sickness strikes, I think is going to have to be a thing that theaters invest in uh, because we have to be more willing to step away from a show when sickness is coming uh, for the production of our, of our staff, for the production of the artists and for the production of the audience as well. I think it's not our job to have the problem adjust to us it's our job to adjust to the problem right like like people want to make they want to figure out a solution like make the virus adapt to our solutions like no you have to have your solutions adapt to the virus right and you can't be rigid about that right it takes a lot of flexibility and I mean, really, we want, you know, we, we want to make sure, like, there's no point in producing theater if the people that are, people aren't coming in because they don't feel safe. It's only fine when the, the consumer says it's fine, not when the person leading the business says it's fine. You still have to create precautions to make them feel safe in order to get them to the theater. And then another thing that I'll bring up is kind of a positive thing that might come from this is that because what Dan's saying, theaters across the country are being creative and they're coming up with really interesting solutions. You know, there's uh, one, you know, I'm, I'm from Atlanta, so I'm tied into the Atlanta theater scene and the Alliance down there is going to be doing a, a drive-in production of The Christmas Carol. So it's, which is interesting. I mean, you know, it's not that cold down there in Atlanta, so it's really not that bad to go and bring a blanket, you know, a cup of coffee and, and watch Christmas Carol so that they don't have to uh, skip that tradition because they've been doing it since before I was born and uh, yet they still get to produce. And I do think that, you know, there's a lot of complexities to figuring out how digital media in the theater can work. Specifically what I mean is streaming plays 
there's complexities there because of you know union rules and things like that. But I think that this is a moment that's kind of calling on those unions and on theaters in general to figure out how to create more content that is more readily available through streaming. And we're seeing theaters that have success with that, you know. And so I hope that I hope that that is a positive externality of all the horribleness that COVID is. That we come out with a theater that's leaner, more digital. And uh, I know, I know, I know. There's problems with that, but but yeah. then there's accessibility. You know what I mean? Like we're mm -hmm. talking at the same time about the difficulties of accessibility to the theater. And if you create a, a streaming capability, you know, then you also increase accessibility. You know, like the NFL, when it went to a video thing, people are like, oh, no one's gonna go to the game because they can just watch it from home. But there's nothing like going to a football game. You know, I think it's the same thing with you. Mm -hmm. I don't push back on that. I don't know if it's the same thing with theater, but, but I will, I mean, absolutely. I think innovation, like we're a testament to that. Like, I feel like this is, you know, whenever there's hardship, what's great is we get to innovate our way out of it or solutions that we haven't thought of in the past. Uh, selfishly, you know, I pray, <laughs> I pray that we go back to a time where we can all be on a stage with a full audience, you know, like, mm -hmm. that's just me being selfish, because that's what, when I think of being in the theater, that's what it is for me, you know, but absolutely, if that's something that's not available to us, we have to figure out strategies to make it available for the sake of our organizations to survive, you know, and for the sake of the theater, so I agree with you there. It's not my ideals, but, mm -hmm. you know, screw my ideals of people aren't healthy and happy, right? Like, right. That, that's really what comes first. I, and I don't really think there is a right answer, but I do think that it's always like the, the comparison between theater and live sporting events, for example, is really interesting because I feel like the hesitancy sometimes might come from like, are we, you know, desanctifying something by like streaming this or making this accessible via, you know, streaming platforms or using a medium that wasn't, you know, initially meant to be viewed with. Um, and I think that as, as much as I love being in communities of artists and theater communities in general, I think that we do tend to be very precious about convention and about, you know, things that we've held dear for a very long time. And we'll have trouble, you know, evolving to new standards and new, you know, ways of working and new, you know, ways of engaging with audiences too. And I think that we have to, sometimes it would, it would, it would serve us best to be able to, to step back from that a little bit and say like, well, why haven't we thought about this in this way before? Like, is this really going to be making something that we think that we hold so dear to our hearts, like that different? Is it just going to be increasing accessibility for people? Like what's actually going to be changing? Like, what are we really, are we desanctifying anything? And I think like, that's, that's a question to ask. Yes, I hear you, the desanctifying by bringing in this kind of outside eye and, and making it a different experience. Because, I mean, like I said at the beginning, clearly I'm, I'm still divided on this, that I think theater is a geographic art form, you know, that it mm -hmm. is about being in a place. But also at the same time, it's like, we also have this call to make theater become a thing that is accessible in a different way to people who maybe can't go to a theater, you know what I mean? Like, the, there, there are a lot of different uh, calls to action there and also I think opportunities there will be nothing that replaces that magic of sitting in the house before a show starts and being there and hearing you know the audience laugh together and, 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 and feeling that experience that's the thing that I think is unique to theater and taking theater into a you know and removing the audience from that and watching it in a digital way I mean it's always going to be not as full an experience 
but I still think that it can be a transformative experience for people. Yeah, yeah. I think ultimately it's hard because the question is who watches the theater and will they want to watch that? You know, I think it's hard because of a lot of, you know, like it's hard to get people into the seats to begin with, you know, and yeah. it's hard to fund theaters to begin with. So to make it something even more abstract and less of an event, uh, you know, maybe that's something that we can capitalize on, but the cynic in me doesn't feel optimistic mm-hmm. about that, you know, because we have troubles right now, you know, for, we have a lot of troubles in the theater right now. I think know? a lot of the troubles comes from an inaccessibility, a kind of a, a, a well, geriatric nature of the theater, uh, you know, yeah. not to be, you know, not, there's nothing wrong with, you know. Yeah, but I think but. it also comes with you know, funding, like the, the question yes, that yeah. always comes to theater is funding and funding. The only way that you get rid of the only way you deal with funding is two ways through well, three ways through private donors, through the federal government or through ticket sales and programs, right? Mm-hmm. Like those are the three ways. So do we think that NEA is going to start giving more money? I mean, hopefully with Biden, but is there a precedent for that, that the NEA just started getting this huge increase in funding, right? Then we have private donors. Where are we going financially that private donors are gonna have more money? And then finally ticket sales and programs, right? So if it's ticket sales, that means we need to sell more tickets, right? Do we think we're gonna sell more tickets by having online programming where you get to see the show? I'm not too optimistic about that. But then again, this is the time where we figure that out, right? Nonprofit theaters, I don't know. I'm sure that maybe someone has said this on the podcast before, but the kind of the general good uh, governance thing is to hope for and to seek 40% of your income coming from earned. So that's programs, that's ticket sales, the stuff that Dan's talking about. And then 60% from unearned, which is donors and grants and things like that, you know? And so... If, you know, the big problem is that a lot of people aren't donating to theaters right now because they aren't going. And so they're kind of out of mind. And I think that reminding people that these organizations exist, they hire hundreds of people, the major theaters do. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, in total, they hire yeah, tens of thousands. thousands. Yeah. I mean, the entertainment industry makes up 4% of our GDP. So it's like, there is a reason to care about the theater. Especially now when we're figuring out what... Um, what? That's just it. We're figuring out what. Yes, exactly. Um, but yeah, the issue of funding and of what do people, you know, find, what do, what, what do American people find worthy of receiving funding from the federal government? What do we, like, as a society think deserves that type of emphasis? So what do we really want to put all our resources towards? Um, I think that's also a question that's going to evolve in the coming months and years as well. That was also prompted by COVID. Um, And also just like second guessing what we previously deemed super valuable and worth saving and, you know, the resources that we put off to the side before and taking a step back and reevaluating that. And I'm hoping that that is something that works out in the favor of theater, but the arts in general, especially in this country, because you have to speak of it, you know, in terms of America specifically, because it's so different globally it's such a specific situation in this country when it comes to like how are we funding the arts and like what do we value as a society and what makes that okay um so that's a that's a whole nother discussion that i think is super interesting and also warranted one other bit of ammunition just to put it (laughs) in just to just to share it is that the city of berlin gives more money individually to the arts than the federal government of the united states 
city oh of Berlin. <laughs> that is insane to me. I'll just let that lay there. That is that is crazy to hear. I I did not know that. I had no idea. I'm gonna use that. Thank you for. <laughs> I, I appreciate having that information right now. So I'm just gonna leave one more question open to you guys, like in terms of things that you're excited about for the future, in terms of what you're planning on pursuing with the Kane Rep, um, whether or not that's related to the new Play Lab. Just yeah, opening the floor for any other things that you're looking forward to. What's really been um fruitful from the experience is that we've had a bunch of the playwrights that we worked with contact us again and have new works they want us either to workshop or a play that we workshop that they're interested in possibly getting produced with us you know which is really exciting because finding world premiere plays of great new playwrights really can um propel your theater to the national stage. And so I think we're working with people now that can give us that opportunity, you know, that if we produce a play here in St. Charles in the world premiere, that we can possibly create a relationship with a playwright that deserves, you know, national acclaim. And so I think that's really the next step when we can get to a producing mm -hmm. element, whenever that will be. Right. Uh, then, the space that's being built right, in St. Right. Charles. Luckily, you know, St. Charles is a growing community at the moment. You know, it's um, a community that is really reinvesting in what its downtown looks like, which is great. Uh, and in particular, there's an old building that was once a vaudeville theater, this beautiful old vaudeville theater that then got turned into an office a law office. A law office that had this really weird, it was like, there, you could see it was a theater. You could see where the stage was. There was a raised area that was the stage. And in the middle of that raised area was a tree. They were growing a tree there. Very weird, you know? So like, it really took a step away from being a theater. And now there's a, um, people here, developers, that want to help uh, propel St. Charles as becoming a Western arts town. They're basically turning it back into like a 180 seat theater. Right. So we're really excited to be on the ground floor of a community that is looking to grow that. And we're excited to, to reach new audiences because of that development. That's sort of our long term plans. I mean, there are a bunch of things we want to do in education. I have a really, I have a lot of education experience and a lot of TYAs and dealing with kids with special needs. And once we can get more manpower or some more grant funding there's definitely one of the first things we want to do is teach an acting class there's a juvenile facility right in st charles that was one of our plans from the get-go and that's something we would love to do once we can um yeah i mean expanding our education side is something that's really important to us too so th those are really the things on the horizon oh i'm looking forward to it for you guys i'm rooting for you so that's uh yeah i hope it all it all works out Thank and you. thank you so much for, for sharing everything about your company with me. It was really, really awesome to just get your perspectives on things that you've been prioritizing over the past couple of months and more about the history of, of what you've created and all of that. And you guys are obviously super passionate about what you're doing. So it's, um, yeah, it just makes conversations like this that much more fruitful and, in, and enjoyable. So I appreciate it. Yes, thank you. Thank, thank you. you. It was yeah, amazing. Yes. Time. Yeah, no problem. Have a good rest of your week. You, you too. too. Thank you. Bye. 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 You can visit canerepertorytheater.com to learn more about the company and the artists who've contributed to the new Play Lab. And stay tuned for more conversations with theater companies throughout Chicago.